the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. I perceive that King James says virtue or power, and IV says has gone forth from me. It's very interesting. This is a unique case where someone passionately pursued Jesus to receive healing rather than Jesus going after them in response to them or initiating it for himself to issue his healing grace towards them. She, in the exercise of faith, goes after it for herself in this very quiet, discreet way. In today's message, Pastor Gary will share a story of a woman who needed the healing power of Jesus. She believed that she would be healed simply by touching the clothes he wore. And as you'll see today, that's exactly what happened. Her faith in Christ drove her to seek him out. Is your faith that strong? Are you actively seeking Jesus for everything that comes up in your life? He's there for you, and He wants to interact with you. Don't be afraid to boldly pursue the grace and love of your Savior. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke, chapter 8, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. This is still Jewish territory where Jews are living, and they have no business raising pigs. Pigs were not kosher. They're against the Mosaic law. Again, I referred last week to Mark chapter 7, when, when Jesus talked about how it's not what goes in a man that makes a man unclean. It, because what goes in a man passes out. But it is his heart that is the issue of what makes a man clean or unclean. And then he, and he lists some sin issues and says, you know, it's the heart issue. That's really what makes a man clean or unclean. And then Mark adds in parenthesis, Mark 7, by this Jesus declared all foods clean. So now that we live under grace, it means you can eat shrimp, you can eat crab, you can eat pork. Praise God. Amen? What would life be without pork and seafood? You know what I'm saying to you? Now, if you choose not to eat those things, that's okay. You, you, you might be healthier than the rest of us. But if you like the other white meat, as pork is known to be, then eat up to the glory of God. I can tell you, that the first time I went to Israel, back in 99, uh, and I went on what was called a pastor familiarization tour. A bunch of pastors went together, and they took... Uh, a bunch of us pastors who had never been there before and kind of on a training trip so we could take our own groups, which subsequently now I've done about a dozen times. Uh, and we're going again in February, Lord willing, with flap jackets. But anyway, that's a whole other story. No, I'm kidding. We're going to still go, but it's going to be, there's a, there's a peace agreement right now. Let's see how long it lasts. So anyhow, uh, I remember my first time in Israel and 
you know, just, I'm not a big bacon eater. I mean, once in a while, I like some good bacon, but I'm, it's not like every morning I wake up and I, and I need bacon. But I just remember after being there several days, and they have these glorious buffets at all the hotels we go to, and they have this great spread out, and, you know, eggs are always there, and vegetables and fruit and breads galore. And I just, you know, whenever you see eggs, you just, you just need bacon with that. And so, and here I am going through a line with a bunch of pastors, all right? And day after day, I'm eating the eggs. And I'm like, Where, where's, where's the bacon? You know, and I mean, I'm, not, I'm not clued into the whole thing. You know, and finally, I'm just kind of moaning about it. And with the other pastors, like, you know what? I've eggs and fruit and vegetables and potatoes and bread. And this is wonderful. Where is the bacon? And they just kind of give me that look. Like, seriously? It's Israel. They're Jews. Ah, right. Okay. But now... We're under grace, so you can eat up. It's all good. But at the time, listen, these people should not have had pigs. So they're violating the Mosaic law. And what Jesus is doing is, comprom- is, is addressing their compromise at the same time that he's delivering this guy from demons by running their livelihood off the cliff. That's what he's done here. They were called Hellenistic Jews. The Jews who lived on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee were known as Hellenistic Jews because they had adapted the Greek Hellenistic ways of life and they had joined it with Judaism. In other words, they were keeping the feasts and the Jewish festivals and having a ham sandwich at the same time. Now let that speak to you. It speaks to me. Because we can look at this and go, oh, those Hellenistic Jews... But the question becomes, is there a little bit of compromise in our own lives? Where we come to church, we want to live for the Lord, we read our Bibles, but we also are adapting some of our own cultural compromises into our lives and doing things, going places, engaging in activities that are nothing more than being Hellenistic Jews. We're no better. If we think that we can kind of have one foot in the world, one foot in the church, We have to be all out for Jesus. It cannot be this, I'm still going to just, you know, do worldly stuff with my friends on Friday nights, and I'm going to come to church on Saturday nights. And and there are a lot of Christians who live like that. They live like the world during the week, and then they live like Jesus on Sundays. And it must not be. There has to be a, a life change when we yield our hearts to Jesus where we will live in the world, but not be of the world. We will be salt and light to our unsaved friends, but our example would lead them to Christ, not cause them to question our faith because we're doing the same thing that they do. There has to be something distinct and noticeably different that would draw people to Jesus as they see Jesus in our lives. Otherwise, if we are just doing everything they're doing, they'll never see the need for Christ themselves. Because we'll be no different. So we have to ask ourselves when we read a story like this, are we Hellenistic Jews ourselves? In the sense of, are we just kind of living worldly lives and then trying to live for Christ and just merging the two and thinking that that's okay? It's not okay. And we have to to make a decision. Are we going to live for the world or are we going to live for Christ? Because the Bible says that the love of the world is enmity towards Christ. And so we ourselves have to have to be uh, bold in our faith and courageous in our lives 
to not make those kind of compromises as they did. So that's what Jesus is addressing here. Now, it says in verse 34 that when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus. When they came to Jesus, rather, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were, notice, circle, afraid. Those who had seen it, told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome, here's the word again, with fear. And so Jesus got in the boat and left. And this is kind of tragic when you think about it because these people should have been filled with awe. These people should have been filled with joy. These people should have been filled with excitement because this guy that has been known around town, kind of the boogeyman, the guy that everybody wants to avoid, and he lives in the tombs, and, he's, and he runs around, and he's, and he's demon-possessed, and he's got the strength of a, of, you know, a, a company of soldiers, and, and he's living this kind of a life. Now, all of a sudden, he's dressed, and he's in his right mind. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, calm, cool, collected. He's been delivered. These people should have been rejoicing. Instead, they're afraid. And it is the Greek word phobeo. We get our English word phobia from that word. And it is the same word found down later there that I read a moment ago at the end of verse 37. They were overcome with great fear, phobos. And these people are gripped with fear. Why? Because Jesus has confronted their lifestyle. So they're, they're not rejoicing over this guy who's been delivered. They're all bothered about what Jesus has done to confront their compromise. Their livelihood has been destroyed. We don't like this guy. You need to leave our town. And Jesus leaves. Gets in a boat and he leaves. Now as he's leaving, it says in verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home. And tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. It's it's interesting that in in Mark's gospel, Mark actually, when Jesus tells him return home, Mark actually adds return home to your family and tell them what God has done for you. Again, this is somebody's son or husband or father. And Jesus says, I want you to go home, but go back to your family. Now, you know, we see this guy as soon as he's delivered from these demons. First, he's sitting at Jesus' feet, and then he's begging to go with Jesus. And, and, you, and you might think, if you, if you just think for a moment, you know, if you, if you have been radically delivered like this, why wouldn't you want to go home? You've probably been missing your family. How long has he been like this? It doesn't say how many years, perhaps. You, you know, you probably would want to go home. I want to be reunited with the family I haven't seen in a long time. The reason it is likely that he wanted to go with Jesus instead is because if you've been delivered from that kind of bondage, there's probably a little bit of him that is afraid it's going to come back. So he wants to go with Jesus, kind of as a safety measure. I think I need to go with you. You know, it's, it's good having Jesus in your, in your back pocket just in case this stuff happens again, and I, I want Jesus to be there for me when I need him. And Jesus is basically assuring him, you're going to be fine. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You need to go home to your family and tell them what has happened to you. Don't be afraid. You just go home. And so he did. He went all through town 
telling what the Lord had done for him, and then returning to his own family. Well, verse 40, down through the end of the chapter, takes us into uh, a story that is also recorded in in Matthew and Mark. It's recorded in Mark uh, 5 and in Matthew 9, and it's about a a dead girl and a sick woman. I, I wish that our Bibles would be subtitled a little differently, perhaps healing a sick woman and raising a dead girl. So instead of just a dead girl and a sick woman. Well, it's, there's kind of a better outcome than that subtitle, so don't let that discourage you. And, and I want us to see some, some lessons from this passage, healing of a, a sick woman and raising a dead girl. So I'm going to read from verse 40 down to the end of the chapter. Verse 40, now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Very interesting. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were waiting and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Parents were astonished, but they ordered them not to tell any but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. In other words, he, Jesus was always on a divine timetable. He didn't want the people to prematurely make him a king. He came to die as savior of the world, so he wanted to make sure things were not you know, broadcast too loudly in some cases because he knew what, what, what would be the result. And he didn't come to abolish the Roman Empire. He, he came to uh, take away our, and die for our sins. Now, you have in this scene here, they return to Capernaum, the home base of Jesus' ministry for three and a half years. And he is met by a crowd. They're expecting him. And in the crowd, there are among probably many needy people, two that are named here. One is a guy by the name of Jairus. Bible says he's a synagogue ruler, which is basically a church administrator. And it says that his daughter at, of the age of 12 is sick and near death. Hasn't died yet, but she's, she's near death. So he has this tremendous need. And also in the crowd here, unnamed, is this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Now, I don't think, you know, there's a lot of speculation. Is there any significance between the girl being 12 years old and the woman having the issue of blood for 12 years? I, you, know, you could probably make some, some points out of it, but I think it's dangerous. I don't, I don't think there's probably a clear reason why the number 12 there, but it makes for some interesting speculation. Uh, but, but here's this girl near death, and here's this woman 
in, in some ways near death herself. I mean, her life uh, system is flowing out of her. So she obviously has a, a, a female condition here. And typically in the Mosaic law, just when a woman was on her monthly cycle, that made her unclean for seven days. And there was a whole ritual bathing that had to occur after that. And during that time period, a woman couldn't go to the, to, the, to the temple, to the house of the Lord, because she was considered unclean. Anything that she touched, anything she sat on, any contact she had with anything was also made unclean and had to be cleansed through, through a ritual kind of bathing. And she could have no contact with her husband during this period. So as a result, during what normally would be a seven-day time period, a woman felt a bit isolated. Can you imagine 12 years feeling that isolated? Where you really can't have, you can't touch people. I mean, you can be around people, but you're not supposed to touch people. Any place you sit, somebody can't sit after you. You can't go to the house of the Lord. So this woman is desperate. The Bible says in the other gospels, she has spent all that she has on the doctors of the day and wasn't getting any better. So she's desperate. But it's embarrassing. I mean, she doesn't want to stand up and, you know, announce her condition. So as Jesus is moving through the crowds, she's going to reach out and just touch him just kind of quietly and discreetly. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. Jairus has this need. He's come. He's, he's pled with Jesus. Please, my daughter is sick. She's dying. Please come with me. My daughter needs to be healed. And as Jesus is making his way there, she reaches out. This woman does, touches the edge of his garment, and she's healed. She exercises faith as she approaches Jesus. And Jesus, sensing that power has flown, has moved out of him, says, who touched me? And he stops. Who has touched me? And his disciples, they laugh. They're like, who's touched you? You're surrounded by all the, the press of the crowd here. And of course, people have been touching you. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. No, I perceive that King James says virtue or power, and IB says has gone forth from me. It's very interesting. This is a unique case where someone passionately pursued Jesus to receive healing rather than Jesus going after them in response to them or initiating it for himself to issue his healing grace towards them. She in the exercise of faith, goes after it for herself in this very quiet, discreet way. Now, I want you to imagine right now, Jairus, your daughter is dying, and Jesus has stopped in his tracks to, to try to figure out who has touched him. I'd be going out of my mind. I mean, I'd be like, hello, you know, I don't know who touched you, but we need to get to my house. My daughter's dying, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you feel like this is not the time to be stopping? This is hurry, hurry, hurry. Keep that in mind because real quickly I'm going to share three things that I think are important for us to, to grasp from this story. But, but Jesus then says this. The woman just kind of sheepishly can only imagine this, rather probably embarrassed. She comes forth. She says, well, I'm the, I'm the one who touched you. And, and then Jesus commends her and he says there in verse 48, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. For the first time in 12 years, she's clean. I mean, according to the Mosaic law, she's clean and she's healed and she's whole here. So her life has radically changed. Now, as this little intermission is occurring here, 
somebody from Jairus' house comes and says, no need to bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter has died. Jairus, of course, has, has got to be devastated, but Jesus turns to him and says there in verse 50, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. They continue on to the house. There are mourners there. Jesus puts things in proper perspective. He's, he said, she's only asleep. Now, what does he mean by that? She is actually dead. But in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15, there's a euphemism that was used by the New Testament church that talks about those who have fallen asleep. And it is used often, and Jesus uses it here, as a euphemism to remind us that death is not the final destiny, that there is life after death. It is not, it is not permanent. Death is a passing from this life to the next. So Jesus wants people to know this is nothing permanent here. He casts everybody out, the... the you know, all these mourners, and he casts the, the doubters out. He takes only the, the girl's parents, Peter, James, and John with him, into the room and says to her, my child, get up. And he uses a, an expression in the Aramaic, which, which literally means my little lamb. It is a very affectionate term, he says to her. He calls her my little lamb. He says, get up, and she is healed. Now, three things real quickly about this story. Number one, there is a difference between casual contact with Jesus and passionate pursuit of Jesus. Please note that. The difference in the first story with the woman who was healed is that she passionately pursued Jesus. I think that there are times, and this is true I think probably of every church, when people, there will be people at church, and there are some who are just content with casual contact with Jesus, and there are some who passionately pursue him. And you, you will never really experience all that he has for you if you are only content with casually brushing up against Jesus every now and again. We have to be people who passionately pursue him. That's where the answer was for this dear woman. The second thing that I see in this story is that God's delay is often for his display. I've said that many times, but it is true here as well. He is always on time. To Jairus, he's thinking Jesus is late because he's being stopped by this scene right here with this woman. I, I don't know if he was, you know, thinking bad thoughts about, you know, anything. Maybe he was very gracious. Maybe he was very gentle in the scene, probably far more than I would have been. But the point is that Jesus was still on time, even though the daughter died. Because in his delay, there was even a greater display of his power. If you feel from time to time that Jesus is late, please note He's always on time. And sometimes his delay is for his greater display. And then lastly, I see in this story how Jesus accepts our faith, however great or small. When you look at Jairus here, he pleads with Jesus, come to my house. My daughter is sick and dying. But one chapter earlier, at the beginning of Luke chapter 7, there's the story about the centurion who comes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick. Very similar scene. He says, my servant is sick. But the centurion says to Jesus, but just say the word. You don't need to go to my house. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Because I understand authority, and I respect your authority. All you have to do is say the word. Jesus never went to the centurion's house, but his servant was healed from that moment. Whereas Jairus didn't say, just say the word. He said, please, I'm begging you, come to my house. And Jesus didn't say to him, well, you know, the dude back in chapter 7 had a little bit more faith than you do. All he told me was say the word. Now you need me to come to your house. You know, none of that. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't shame us? You know, that he accepts us right where our faith is. 
He did for the centurion in chapter 7. He did for Jairus in chapter 8, even though they asked different things for a similar purpose. And Jesus will accept our faith right where it is, because he knows us. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website, Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection.